Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, you'll remember last week we were in this same paragraph and we said that we're familiar with the nine spiritual fruits of the Spirit-filled life in Galatians. We talk about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. But we're less familiar with the nine spiritual fruits of a Spirit-filled local body of believers, the church. And those nine are listed in the paragraph that we're in in Ephesians 4. But of those nine today, I just want to zero in one that happens in the middle of this paragraph in verse 15, which I think is profound and has huge, huge implications for us in the church. Church, hear this spiritual fruit that God is going to give us. Ephesians 4 verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we pray that your kingdom would come to us not less than in words. It comes in words and it comes with many words. But also as Corinthians promises and with power. Whatever words are spoken today, I pray they are drenched in spirit-filled power, power to change us, power to confront us, power to woo us, power to attract us to the kingdom of God that we might speak in the same way that Jesus and his Father speaks. Would you do that? We plead with you. We beg you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we talk about speaking, which is all about our passage, I want to speak for a little bit about the role of talking. If you think about it, Christianity, our faith, is a very wordy faith. It's a wordy religion that we experience. And we know that from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, because we hear that God created the world through his words. He spoke the world into existence. He could have thought it into existence. He could have written a memo into his existence, but he doesn't. He speaks creation by the word of his power. When Jesus comes, he's introduced like God in Genesis as the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1.1 God creates, God sends Jesus by the word, God saves humanity by the word. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. Romans 10.17 Not only does he save us, but then God teaches us how to live by his words. What we get in the Ten Commandments given in the Hebrew is not called the Ten Commandments in Exodus, but the Ten Words of God. These are his words for how we're to order our lives. We now today hold in our hands this morning a 1,000 page God-breathed book that is full, chock full of words. And even then, even with all this speaking and writing, the Apostle John, as he finished his gospel, the gospel of John, bemoaned the lack of words. He said, I wish I had the time to write out all that Jesus said and did and thought, because if I did have that time and space, the world could not contain the books that he could write. Christianity 
is a wordy faith. It's a word-saturated world. It follows then that if God himself speaks life-giving words and we as the church are to imitate God, Ephesians 5.1, then we're going to learn to speak life-giving words just like God speaks life-giving words. We're going to begin to do that same thing as we imitate him. I've been reading through Proverbs this past week, and I came across a string of verses that make our speaking sound godlike. What we say to each other sounds like how God would speak. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many. 12.18. The tongue of the wise brings healing. 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. A believer's words sound like Jesus' words. Jesus can feed the 5,000. He can heal the sick. He can bring the dead back to life. And that's exactly what God intends for us as his church. That's why Paul is going to put so much emphasis in these three chapters, four, five, and six on our words. He told us in chapters one through three what God has done for our salvation. Now he's telling us in four, five, and six what God is doing to sanctify us together as the church. And central to that sanctification is for the church to learn with James how to tame her tongue. The way Paul goes about doing this is he tells us the words that we're to take out of our vocabulary and then tells us the words that we're to put into our vocabulary. He's going to do that in every chapter here throughout. He's going to encourage us, Christian, whatever you do, put down, take out, get away from words that are lying or corrupting or slanderous in chapter 4. I want you to put away filthy or foolish talk or nasty and coarse joking in chapter 5. He says, church, I want you to put off and get away from empty words. They're not true and they don't mean anything and they don't hold any weight. Flush your vocabulary from all of these kinds of words and thoughts and ideas. And instead, take on, replace them with, Words that are loving and edifying and truthful. I want you, church, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. I want the church to put on the belt of truth and the shield of faith and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And when she has done all of those things, I want her to pray in chapter 6, verse 19, for bold words to preach and proclaim the gospel to those who don't know them. We're going to take out of our vocabulary a world of words that we've learned and we're going to put into our speech and over our vocabulary a world of words that God will teach us. And then, and I love this, after Paul has written all of this at length, I mean he delivers to Ephesus a six chapter, 155 verse, 2,422 word letter He gives it to his friend Tychicus, 
And he says, I'm sending my friend with my letter in chapter 6, verse 21, so that he can tell you everything. I've already talked about talking. Now I'm sending my friend so that he can fill you in on the rest. He's going to keep talking. This is a faith saturated in words. And it follows that church, if we are going to grow up into the full stature of the word made flesh, you and I are going to have to relearn how we talk to each other. We're going to have to learn a whole new way of speaking to each other. Now, two weeks ago, I received one of the most touching letters in the mail that I've received for a long, long time. And it was sent to me by a Chinese dealer on Amazon. I had bought a product and they sent me a letter. And I know it's written in a second language and I get that. And I couldn't respond in a second language. So it's got some goofy sections in it. But, but this group gets the weightiness of words. Can I just read a selection from this letter? I have it here sent to me, and it says this. Dear David Gentino, first of all, if there is any interruption or offense, we would like to apologize to you. Please forgive us for contacting you in this way, as we believe the most primitive letter often carries the heaviest emotion. Meanwhile, understanding is definitely the soil of bringing up friendship. I bought a 10-foot extension cord for my Nintendo controller, and this is what I got. We only knew how to sell products successfully before long, and naively thought that one man's meat is another man's poison. I don't understand that. Thinking back, we were too young, too simple. Are you happy or not happy? If happy, we're just happy you're happy. If you don't know how to express your newfound joy, we've got a few suggestions. Share your experience by writing a five-star review on Amazon. Tell your friends and family. Reply to us. At last, please forgive us for contacting you in this way. If there is no continuous sincerity and dedication, and if we treat customers casually, we will be further away from you. I got teared up when I read that letter. That was so... None of y'all have sent me a note like that this week. And these guys did, and they get the weightiness of words. They're relearning how to speak customer to dealer. Well, that's what we're doing as the church. We're relearning how we can speak one to another. And these instructions for our God-like talk, they couldn't be more simple. You've already memorized the meat of this verse, which is, to speak truth in love. That couldn't be easier to understand and more difficult for all of us to put into practice one with another. The reason I think it's so hard is, as we've said before in here, but it bears repeating, all of us come to this experiment of the local church hardwired in one direction or another. All of us tend to be either a truth person or a love person. I think you already know what I'm talking about. You just kind of look out across the room and you know some people are wired to tell it like it is and some people are wired to be empathetic. We kind of come with one or the other. Now it's helpful even as you hear this to think in your heart, 
How has God hardwired me? Which one, which one do I lean towards? What would my friends say about me? Am I a truth person or a love person? What would they say? I love to make fun of both because we're in this together and we all understand that it comes with God's blessing and bears his image, but it's also bent by the fall and it comes with nasty collateral damage. The caricature of a love person, I'm talking to the love people in here, is a people-pleasing, brown-nosing pushover. They're a schmoozer. They're a politician. They're a wisp in the wind. It's hard to nail them down on what they think about anything. If you ask them how dinner was, they will tell you, thank you so much for the meal. If you ask them how your dress looks, they will say, I love dresses. If you ask them what their favorite show on Netflix is, they'll say, whatever yours is. And when you give them that weird look like, what are you talking about? Why aren't you answering me? They're thinking to themselves, I'm saying all of this in love. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Well, you think that's bad. Think of the caricature of a truth person. A no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is, rip-the-band-aid-off-in-one-pool bull in the china shop. You ask them how dinner was, and they'll tell you it needed more salt. You ask them how this dress looks, and they'll tell you it adds 15 pounds at least. You ask them about a Netflix show, and they'll say, I wouldn't know. There hasn't been a real show on Netflix since The Office. And when you give them those wounded puppy dog eyes, they'll say, I'm just telling you the truth. (laughs) You asked me what I thought, and I'm telling you exactly that. Now, in God's marvelous sense of humor, he takes both of those people, he takes truth people and he takes love people, and he converts them, and then he throws them together in close quarters in the local church, and he makes them depend on each other's words for their sanctification. Isn't that a crazy experiment? Doesn't that sound like a bad idea? If you could corner God before all this happened and say, I I don't know about that one. Truth people love people depending on each other for this because when you start doing this in close quarters and when our eternal lives are staked upon God's work through the church in each other, that's really, really risky business. You, You run a lot of risk for people to hurt each other and damage each other with our words. That's already happened, right? We've already experienced that in the church. We've already been wounded by other people's words. You take somebody in our midst who it takes them years to to have the courage to share with somebody else that they struggle with anxiety and depression and they confess it to a truth person and the truth person tells them they just need to pray more. That hurts. You put a, a, a gossip in a church who, who pulls somebody aside and speaks about another person, and, and that person is a love person, so they never say anything to the gossip. They just make a mental note not to share anything important with them again, and that hurts. You get a truth person in a life group who wins absolutely every theological argument that you can throw at them, and they've driven everyone away. And it hurts. 
Or you put a love person in the midst where they can gather friends very quickly because they only speak empty and flattering words and it hurts. Here we are in the church depending on each other's words for our sanctification and we are starting at a distinct disadvantage. We're bringing hard wiring. We're bringing an Enneagram. We're bringing baggage. We're bringing things we've experienced. And it is risky business. And people are going to get hurt in the church. If you think it's an overstatement to say that we're depending on each other's words for our sanctification, look back at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's a whole lot of sanctification weight on our words. All of a sudden, we don't have the luxury in the church of being a truth person or a love person. We can't kind of continue in our comfort zone if this is what is at stake. All of a sudden, each one of us is being called out of our hardwiring and into life in the Spirit together, and we're being asked to do something that we can't naturally do with our own gifting and resources and passions. God is calling us to something greater than that. I want to close by saying a word then to the love people who are here and the truth people who are here. This is the weight on our words. How do we respond and what do we do? To the love people. If you're a love person, would you raise your hand in your hearts? Who here in your heart is a love person who who, uh, recognizes this personality? If so, I say this from Ephesians. Our culture is going to celebrate. They're going to be excited about your heartfelt, inclusive, authentic, ready-to-listen, reticent-to-confront love. Our culture will love you for that kind of love. And love people love to be loved by people, so love people are set up to succeed in this warm, symbiotic, worldly womb of mutual love and affection. That's why God's vision for the truth in this world of love sounds otherworldly. It's not a live and let live kind of deal in this paragraph. Where there is no speaking truth in love, verse 14, our friends and fellow believers, they are described as being adrift at sea, pounded by waves of false teaching and practice. They become easy marks for imposters. If you see a a Christian friend who is struggling with her addiction, 
and you don't say anything? If you tiptoe around a believer who is greedy for his money and his possessions and his time, and you don't say anything to that person? If you want to avoid the awkwardness of asking a fellow believer if they read their Bibles or pray outside on their own time, and so you don't say anything? Or you find a believer who is who's suffering and you don't grab a hold of the reality of God's goodness, sovereign goodness with her. This person is left to be wrenched back and forth, wave by wave, unmoored by sin and suffering. And you are standing on the deck of their lives with an anchor of truth. And you don't want to throw that thing overboard because you don't want to rock the boat. Something is seriously, seriously wrong with that picture. God's love always challenges. It always always challenges. Even if you're a love person talking about God's love to a love person, it always challenges because God's love is otherworldly. It doesn't exactly fit in this world. It doesn't fit in our preconceived notions of what love is and how it's dispensed one to another. Anywhere the truth of God's love is spoken, it will challenge. And this paragraph promises that it wants to bring growth and maturity and equipping and building. And wherever that happens, it will bring growing pains. Even with the best of intentions, even with the best of receptions. God wants to do that in our midst. And he even wants to use love people to do it. God wants to use you to communicate His truth in love. That's to the love people. Think about the truth people. You're either one or you're married to one or you know one. Um, I'm a truth person. And so I kind of think if you have to choose one, it's better to be a truth person because that's what I am. Um, And when I think of a truth person, I readily uh, feel comfortable in passages like Ephesians 6, which says the truth is, is, is the sword of the Spirit. It's the very Word of God. It's not a book to be studied. It's a sword to be swung. And I get frustrated when I look around and I see Christians keeping this clean, unmarked sword in its sheath on a bookcase at home, gathering dust. And I think, for Christ's sake, literally for the sake of Christ, grab that thing, study that thing, and hit somebody with that thing. It's a sword. And to the truth person, myself included, I want to say, settle down, Jon Snow. This ain't the Game of Thrones. We're going to get to spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. And the war that's waged not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers and principalities. If you want to be a truth person, look how God describes a truth person in this paragraph. Because where God's truth is, there is flourishing and building and growing. 
There's life-giving stuff here. It's not a truth that is meant to shame. It's not a truth that incessantly nitpicks. It's not a truth that cuts people down to size or a truth that kind of gets in there and finds the thing that's wrong with a person or with what they're doing. It's not a truth that makes people wince when you walk in the room or a truth that groans when you ask for a minute of someone's time. God's truth is always, always, always healing and life-giving. Even when it hurts, even when it surprises, even when it calls us to change, it always offers life and truth. Like Proverbs 15, it is a tree of life in our midst. When the church is exposed to God's truth in God's way, it is always loving and it is always life-giving. And in God's delicious irony, he wants to use truth people to communicate that kind of love to love people. And he wants to use love people to communicate that kind of truth to truth people. God has set up this experiment so that we cannot possibly do this by ourselves. We go from here depending on the Holy Spirit to do what we confessed, that even though no human being can tame the tongue, God can. He can tame and redeem the tongue, and we can speak life-giving, sanctifying words one to another. Let's pray for that. Dear Jesus, would you do that very supernatural work in our midst? I'm just lazy and tempted to wonder how far I can get in the church just staying a truth person. Let me just focus on the truth and let the chips fall where they may. And your word presses against that and challenges and convicts and says that is not of you. You want to change us and mold us. You want to tame our tongues. You want to make us a life-giving, truth-speaking, loving people, one to another. And you'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen.